Empire podcast this week, we talk to themselves from herself, the star and writer Claire Dunn and the director Phyllida Lloyd. Plus, we hear from Candyman's director woman, Nia DaCosta. All that and the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is dressed up for the occasion in a skin-tight leotard. Nothing to do with ABBA reforming. We're just in that kind of mood. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire podcast. This week with a live show taking place at King's Place on Saturday as part of the London Podcast Festival. We're changing things up a bit around here. Oh, by the way, tickets for that are still available. Uh, We can promise you film chat, spot prizes, cracking special guest, giggling idiots, and much rudeness if that is your bag. Go to kingsplace.co.uk to snap up your seat or seats or a streaming pass. We would love to see you there. So for that show, we have decided to put Helen and James on ice permanently. (laughs) I'm not allowed to kill them. They've made that quite clear to me. These stupid laws. I know we're going to keep them fresh for Saturday, and so they're not in the virtual pod booth this week, but we have found two people of equal intelligence, equal handsomeness, and arguably superior moral fibre to fill their shoes. Edmund himself, newly minted Empire Editor, Nick Dissemlian. Hello. Hello, everyone. It's been ages. I'm very happy. Very happy to be back. There was, there, was, there was a small, a small, tight, a small petition from people demanding your return to the podcast. Yeah, that took me a while to put together as well. Yeah, you know those things that once they hit 100,000 signatures, they have to be discussed in Parliament? Yours hit <laughs> one. like six signatures. But <laughs> well, six. I got six. Six. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, guys. I'm pretty sure one of them was from your cat, Winksy. Winksy <laughs> put in a few votes. Oh, Winksy. It's just like a paw print right there. <laughs> Who knows what the hell she was up to? Uh, yeah. Winksy named, of course, after... Harry Winks. And Harry Winks is Nick? Apparently a football man. <laughs> I should I should probably explain that Winksy the kitten has been has been stolen but essentially from my brother Phil, uh, formerly of Empire, who yes. uh, I borrow we borrow, I borrowed the cat and uh, yeah, it's yeah. now becoming semi-permanent. So thank you Phil. Phil, Phil gave Winksy the name and then Nick took Winksy. It's mm-hmm. it's it's very complicated. It's 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 basically it's it's Michael and Fredo. It's that. Don't ask. Don't get involved. Anyway, we're also joined by Swinton's finest, Beth Webb. Hello. Hello, Beth Webb. Hi. Lovely. How to are be you back. today? I'm good. I'm very good. I was uh, just it's saying. Fucking co- boiling, isn't it? It's not warm. Um, cold. I'm so accustomed. <laughs> your, your, your mind is so melted by the heat. British weather. I'm not used to to dealing with this. But yes, I've just been for a dip in some. Uh, in some public ponds, um, not not which which style, but just to cool down a little bit. So yeah, were there ducks? When you when I hear the word pond, I think of frogs on lily pads and and ducks. <laughs> no lily pads uh, and frogs, unfortunately. No. But yeah, ducks, very very confident ducks, just swimming, sort of circulating around. I'm not one mm. would call a fast swimmer, so mm. they were circling me. Oh my god. Yeah, it was lovely, lovely to be about. But yeah, quite pungent right now. <laughs> it's all a bit third act of sunshine, isn't it? Like it's my my stuff is leaking out of my ears. I don't even know what's happening. I think it's my brain. It's hard to tell. Mark Strong's here. He looks angry. Yeah. Oh, don't mention Mark Strong, Beth. The last time you mentioned Mark Strong in the podcast, bad things happened. Yeah, we can't even talk about it legally. So <laughs> waiting for his people to... I haven't heard back from this publicist, weirdly enough. If you want to know exactly what we're, what we're asking of Mark Strong, go and listen to our Cruella spoiler special, folks. It's well worth your time and well worth the restraining order uh, that we were subsequently served by Mark Strong. 
<laughs> oh God dear. Anywho, so I, I need to I need to drill down into the swimming in the pond uh, business. Okay, so how how does it work? And uh, and is it a bit like that scene in Vacation where they go swimming in what they think is this glorious spring, hot spring, and then it turns out to be raw sewage? Oh, nothing quite that ghastly. Although, yeah, to get a whiff of me right now, you would say otherwise. So I believe there is a scene in. Oh, and I'll get shot for this by by the pod listeners, but either Paddington 1 or Paddington 2, where Sally Hawkins goes for a dip in Hampstead Heath Ponds. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is ever it's so certainly more, one of those. Yes. She's a lot more chipper than I was when I first got in because it was bloody freezing. <laughs> but it, um, it warmed up very quickly. And uh, yeah, the ducks, the ducks sort of kept me going. They were good markers. Amazing. Uh, so yeah, I just went for a little, a little turn about the pond. It was very, Nick, very quaint. Do you swim? I was trying to think when I was last in a pond. It's been a while. <laughs> Nick likes to lurk. He likes to lurk under the surface of the pond. And I've been I've been encouraged not to go in the pond. Um, what was the question? Do you swim? Do, do you I swim? swim? I'm a, I'm I'm a very basic swimmer. I can do the um, what's the one way you're kind of oh doggy doggy paddle. I can do that one. Oh, again, this is memories of Mark Strong. Let's not let's not go there. <laughs> um, I'm a very b- a bad swimmer, but I'm a good I'm a good bobber. Again, this is all coming, this is all sounding wrong. <laughs> it's just sort of I can I can stay in 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 place in water quite well. Okay, I'm pro swimming. I hate diving. Any any kind of thing where people pretend it's fun to jump off of a high place into water. It's it's the worst thing in the world. I hate I've it. I've never done it. I've never done it. I I'm too scared of hitting like an unseen rock and then just dying horribly. More of a, a plopper. <laughs> so I'm I'm a bobber, you're a plopper. Plopper. Nick's a bobber, Beth's a plopper. My God. <laughs> we should we should be kept away from bodies of water. <laughs> All right. Well, so let's move on now. We don't have a three fact structure this week because we don't have four people. There isn't a fourth pair of buttocks in the revolving fourth chair. The revolving fourth chair isn't even revolving. It's just kind of sitting there. A bit like Clint Eastwood's chair, just sitting there. Uh, so no three-fact structure this week. There may be one on the live show. Uh, so if you like that segment, then <laughs> this all sounds like I'm desperately shilling. You know, so if you like three-fact structure, you should go and see the show this Saturday. So we're going to go straight into the listener question. And this one has been sitting in my likes column for a couple of weeks now. It comes from Jess Schilton on Twitter. Jess S. C-H-L-T-N. So I'm guessing a Shilton? Maybe is an abbreviation of her actual name. Who knows? Who the fuck knows? Anyway, she says, I'm doing a rewatch of Shit's Creek. Who has the best eyebrows in the business? Daniel Levy is a strong contender. Surely Eugene Levy. I mean, he's in the show. Like, he, he takes some beat of his eyebrows. They're majestic. Dan wouldn't they have them without Gene. So I think credit where credit's due. Eugene's jeans make <laughs> the Eugene Levy's eyebrows sore. Yeah, I have. I got to admit, like I, I've seen all of Shit's Creek, and I haven't. Um, yeah, Daniel Levy, I hadn't really noticed his eyebrows. I was mesmerized by Eugene's, as I always am. But um, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna have to go back and reappraise them. Yeah, you can't have one without the other. I mean, they're pretty much the same eyebrow, right? To the point where, if they weren't in scenes together, you think that they were detachable eyebrows that they had just. <laughs> They just shared amongst themselves to save money on the budget. I think they're less waggly, though, right? Like, Eugene has got that, that waggle factor. You know, when he's surprised by something, <laughs> those are, those eyebrows just start waggling, and they're incredible. They're hypnotic. They're like uh, 
caterpillars that are very excited. <laughs> so I, I, yeah. So I mean, Eugene, I think is the the kind of the apex of eyebrow acting. I've got a couple of others to throw in. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Belushi, I think, especially in Animal House, uh, mm. those eyebrows move. I mean, he's earning his money with the, the eyebrow acting. He's going for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A- and uh, The Rock is the other person who comes to mind. Has a, it's more of a sardonic single eyebrow lift that he is the master of. He doesn't tend to do the waggly thing, but when he lifts an eyebrow in bemuse in bemusement, he's mm-hmm. uh, he's going for it. It works. Mm-hmm. It works. Yeah, good solid eyebrowing from the rock. That's what he became known for, wasn't it? He had the people's elbow and the people's eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. But you know, you can't you can't let this topic go by without mentioning Nick, our good friend, uh, the late great Sir Roger Moore. Oh, mm. yeah. Because he, mm. you know, that that's mm. what he was. He was he was an eyebrow that uh, was raised by its parents um, and became sentient. And then one day grew a Roger Moore and, and became an actor. <laughs> and it wasn't, it, he doesn't have one of those big, bushy eyebrows. For some reason, I'm thinking of like, a, I don't even know why, because his facial hair is more important, but Someone like a James Robertson Justice is someone who I think of as having great big bushy eyebrows. Brian Blessed has great big bushy eyebrows. You know, there's great big whacking. He's got great. He's got great big bushy everything, though, hasn't oh, he? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's lost among the other things that are big and bushy. Ficket. Ficket. He's a he's a bobber and a plopper. <laughs> with his bushy with his bushy ficket, his bushy eye fickets. Um, <laughs> I have a great big bushy thicket, he says. Now, Roger Moore, Roger Moore, yeah, for your eyebrows only. He is, uh, when he does a quizzical eyebrow better than anyone in the business. Oh, my so, God. Hello, what, what is this? Yeah, uh, double-taking pigeon? <laughs> and he just will raise one eyebrow a couple of inches, and yep. is, that is box office dynamite. That is. It really is. And we were in the presence of that eyebrow. What was it like for it to, to sort of be in the direct... I think it was. I think I raised it uh, myself by by asking him as if he'd seen Inception for some reason. I can't remember why. I can't That's remember right, why, but I, I I asked Roger Moore if he had seen Inception on the podcast, and he That's he right. asked what Inception was, and I tried to explain the plot of Inception to Sir Roger oh Moore, and that eyebrow was going for it at that point. I, oh yeah, my god! Yeah, yeah. That's so was, right. absolutely right. It, it was a low point for both of us. Nick, Nick, explain the plot of Inception to me and Beth. Well. There's a dreamy man, <laughs> and when he when he when he when he when he falls into a bathtub, uh, no, I'm lost. I'm already Beth, lost. Get those eyebrows ready. <laughs> I can't, oh God! You can't, Beth horrible. can't do it. Beth literally can't do it. This is a good thing. So this isn't a video podcast. podcast. Yeah, yeah. I can't see the media going on above my eyes right Beth's, now. Beth's shame. Maybe it's all that pond water has fused your eyebrows <laughs> shut. It's just weighing them down a little bit. But yeah, Roger Moore. Roger Moore for me. I'm also going to throw in. I think. I think. You know, I think strong brows are important for playing Bond. Mm. You know, you have to look quizzical, but also <laughs> you have to look quizzical, but also deeply, deeply authoritative at the same time. So Connery had good brows. Mm. I'm not a big fan of Lazenby's brows. Dalton, mm. the best Bond, mm. really good brows. Brosnan, cracking brows, very, very solid stuff. And I think you also have to have a good brow to play Draculaire. And so I'm definitely thinking about Bella Lugosi, who didn't have those, again, those great big bushy eyebrows, but he had those very, very pointed, almost falcon eyebrows. And we should maybe mention Mr. Spock as well in this context. Great eyebrows of Mr. Spock. But Bella Lugosi had cracking brows. Um, Christopher Lee 
had amazing Ooh, brows. Yeah. Yeah, you know? brilliant ones. What about unibrows? Like Frau Fabistner in, uh, in Austin Powers? <laughs> That's a very effective monobrow. <laughs> well, this is it. I think it's quite a gendered question, really, because I don't think actresses sort of really get the freedom mm. to grow the brows out mm. um, quite as much, which mm. is a shame. I'm struggling to find a bushy-browed... Like, yeah. Well, did Meryl Streep at some stage? You know, usually when they're trying to appear a bit more approachable, that's when they've got bigger eyebrows, but I can't think of any. I imagine Meryl Streep's eyebrow acting is impeccable. Yeah. If you were to watch oh, yeah. one of her films and study the eyebrow acting, I think you'd see that there's some real technique probably Mesmerizing. going on. Mesmerising. Yeah. It's interesting. Mesmerizing. I, had, I had occasion to speak to Ivan Reitman recently, and the subject of twins came up, and... Um, we started talking about eyebrow acting because he said that uh, to begin with, it was obviously Arnold Schwarzenegger's first comedy performance. And his one note, Ivan Ryman's one note to Arnie was stop doing stuff with your eyebrows because every single shot he was doing, his eyebrows were going up and down. And uh, he dialed it down. That was his note. Don't do that stuff with your eyebrows. Dicking around with your eyebrows. <laughs> so there we go. Eyebrow trivia. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of directors, I can't believe we haven't said Martin Scorsese. Oh my good God, what are we doing, the owl. amateurs? The, Corre- owl the correct of answer. Yeah, the yeah. correct answer. Eugene Levy is Martin Scorsese in Meaner Streets, <laughs> the Martin Scorsese biopic. His yes, eyebrows please. are literally full of secrets. That's why they're so big. Groucho Marx. Have you guys seen the cat that looks like Martin Scorsese? Has someone sent it to me? There's a photo oh, of it. It's, it's got big, it's a white cat with big black eyebrows. Yeah, oh, and gonna, looks startlingly like Martin Scorsese. Yeah, it's not a big fan of Meowerville. <laughs> Meow, 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 <laughs> that didn't work. That didn't work. <laughs> I've just I've just googled Bob Balaban cat and nothing of any interest has come up. So maybe don't do that. Um, there you go. But good stuff. I think Amelia Clark might be <gasps> uh, might be uh, a good eyebrow actor because I believe she had an eyebrow off with Stephen Colbert uh, on his show at one point where they were mm-hmm. they were battling via the medium of eyebrows. Oh, mm-hmm. superb! That's great. Yeah. yeah, she's got a fantastically like expressive face. I love mm-hmm. it. So yeah. yeah. We'll bend the knee to those eyebrows. Mm-hmm. Of course, the right answer to this question would be either of the Gallagher brothers if they became actors. Hey, do you know what film they could have starred in? Danny Boyle's Sunshine! You know, because of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway... Anyway, on that note, on that bombshell, another successful question, beautifully navigated by Team Empire. If you want to have your question read out on the Empire podcast, and why the hell wouldn't you, uh, you can get in touch with me via one method only at the moment, which is the old Twitter machine. Uh, You can slide into my DMs if you're so inclined. You can reply to any of my hilarious tweets once you stop laughing, or you can wait for a panicked shout out, which is exactly what I did today. And yeah, I found all your questions wanting. Let's have some movie news. And I think movie news is going to be a bit sad this week, folks, because a lot of really, really great people passed away this week. So let's not start with sad deaths of amazing people. Let's start instead with something that might be very, very exciting indeed. And that is, of course, 
Oscar Isaac kissing Jessica Chastain's arm. <laughs> was it was it a kiss or was it a kind of sort of extended sniff? Oscar Isaac, by the way, excellent eyebrows. Oh, very, yeah, very good eyebrows. Super eyebrows, super super. I think we can attribute the hot weather to like a like a strong warm breeze coming down off Venice, where that that beautiful <laughs> moment came down. We can be grateful to Oscar Isaac just gently caressing Jessica Chastain's back and arm for this twenty. <laughs> 29 degree weather we're experiencing today so thank yeah. you so much oscar for my my day out because of it was that. an extraordinary clip it was an extraordinary clip it was it was a a, a sniff followed by a mischievous smile <laughs> a sniff well like he went straight up to the armpit <laughs> it was a sniff a smile a nibble i mean there was a lot going on it yeah. was uh, I was hot, so I was leaving my house, and the wonderful Christina <laughs> Newland, who tweeted, mm. if you've not seen the tweet that she she sort of launched, <laughs> she sent it, and I had to come back in the house <laughs> to sit down. Did you have to dive into a pond? <laughs> so, like, cool yourself afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> just take off, a, just dunk my head in the sink. It was uh, it was extraordinary. It it truly was. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean. It worked in that I subscribed to both their OnlyFans almost immediately <laughs> afterwards. But I mean, there was it was just it's just two people who are you know friends and colleagues and just playing a little game with the paps, wasn't it? I mean, yeah, and also it was but... one of those things where they they slowed it down like ultra super slow motion, like the the, the love child of John Woo and Sam Peckinpah, almost as if it was like you know and this is a football reference maybe lost in you both but almost as if that had gone to VAR and they were slowing it down to see whether Oscar Isaac had committed a foul in Jessica Chastain and had given away a penalty on the red carpet and so they were You're they were really really it. slowing it down this is a cold so shower I don't yeah. know if there's any you lost any... me a while back you lost me a while back but uh, yeah it had the air of a kind of pre-planned sort of publicity stunt in the grand tradition of, of Cannes uh, publicity stunts my favourite of which is of course for Universal Soldier where Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme kissed each other's arms they sniffed each other's arms no thank goodness they, they didn't but I mean, one was a bobber one was a plopper oh my gosh no they they do you guys know that do you guys know the story so they they wanted to get they didn't have any footage to show from universal soldier but they were just there to do a press event and john claude van damme rang up dolph lundgren in his hotel room and was like right we're gonna pretend to have a fight on the red carpet what and they got in yeah they got in each other's faces they started pushing each other it's all on youtube you can go and have a look and they had a pretend barney which uh van damme admitted like two weeks later he just went oh yeah we made that up we just <laughs> uh, but yeah they did it and it got everyone was snapping their cameras um, but there was no sniffing of arms that time no just roundhouses to the face yeah I mean who's, who, who would win that fight in real life oh, I think Dolph I think Dolph he put Stallone in the hospital didn't he and on Rocky 4 yeah he, um, yeah I think yeah. I, I think my money's on Dolph no matter how many times Jean-Claude does these splits to distract him <laughs> Well, Jean-Claude would surely have the, he'd, he'd be faster, he'd be more lithe, he'd be bouncing around, so he would try and tire Dolph out. But I think Dolph has a superior reach, mm-hmm. so once Dolph got hold of him, it's game over, right? Yeah, Swedish haymaker, and he's down. You have absolutely written this for me, both of you. Absolutely <laughs> ruined this for me. <laughs> yeah, well, should we go back to Jessica Sustain? Uh, like... What I, what I found fascinating about this was that this seemed to replace porn for a lot of people. That it just seemed to be that, you know, this was, this was for many people the hottest thing they had seen in years. This was puppet movie chemistry. Do you know what I mean? It was, I know that they're trying to sort of replicate it a lot at the moment. I know that was like a big thing with Jungle Cruise, wasn't it? They were trying to replicate kind of this old 
movie kind of romantic chemistry. And this mm. just happened within a split second on a red carpet in real life. It, admittedly, probably very, very staged. But it what a performance, if mm. it is. I saw a fantastic tweet where someone said it, it wasn't so much the gesture of what was going on. It's that Oscar Isaac knows how to seduce people. It's kind oh. of the, is the thing. I know how to seduce people. You buy them a fish supper. <laughs> <laughs> Pay for the bus fare home. So thanks very much. It's <laughs> <laughs> a chilling insight into to Chris's personal know, life just, there. Just ruining yeah. this for me. Ruining it. It's horrible. I just get every time I see him, I'm going to see fish suppers and... And yeah. can't like red carpet <laughs> fights. This is horrible. Oscar Isaac's there you go, love as your bus fail. <laughs> See you next week. Just I'll take you down the pictures, then we'll have a fish supper. Disgusting. All right. Anyway, so Oscar Isaac gets Jessica Chastain's <laughs> arm. Told you, Beth, I told you we'd do a good three minutes in that. And then we went on to do a mediocre four minutes uh, on top of it. So um, the <laughs> obviously because we're recording this on Wednesday, and even if we recorded the podcast as is usual on Thursday morning, we would miss the Matrix trailer. So we're going to miss the Matrix trailer. But what we haven't missed this week is all the hullabaloo around the Matrix Resurrections trailer because the Matrix trailer came out in 1998, 1999. Uh, so, uh, so there's been a lot of kerfuffle and excitement about the Matrix Resurrections teaser. Tell us, tell us why. What, what happened with that? Well, for me, it was glorious because it was reminiscent of the original DVD menu, which for us, that was our first family DVD. And maybe was for quite a lot of other people as well. That was one of, for a lot of my friends, that was that was their first DVDs was The Matrix. And you got to, you know, you put it, got it out the cardboard case and you put it in the <laughs> DVD player. And then you got a DVD menu, which was still kind of an event at the time when DVDs were first coming out. And you chose between the red pill and, and the, the blue pill. And I, I can't remember the outcome. I'm sure you ended up in the same place. But with this, they've, they've tailored it so that you get different outcomes now. If you go to the site and you click on the red pill first, you get slightly different trailer than if you go in and you go on the blue pill and then if you mm -hmm. go back there's is it 180,000 variations mm -hmm. I think it is that you you can watch which is just ever so slightly different every time and and goodness me people are eating it up I, I think it's brilliant I think it's so exciting apparently yeah. someone has already stitched together all the footage <laughs> so someone apparently has gone through all of them and 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 put it together in some kind of Franken trailer it's all very exciting like it's it's taking me back to you know, you remember when the original film came out, no one knew what the hell it was. And they used that same line, what is the Matrix? And um, yeah, it's just kind of a nice, I, I like the fact that we don't really know anything about this film. It's it's little bits and bobs coming out of it, but it's, it's out in like three months and it is a total unknown quantity or quality. Both. Well, it is, it's both. It's also, it's an unknown quality because we don't know. I mean, this, this is... I, uh, it's been fascinating over the last 24 hours as we as as film Twitter moved on almost imperceptibly from Oscar Isaac and Jessica Chastain to The Matrix Resurrections and being just, you know, everyone just seemed to be massively excited about the possibility of this, about this film. And um, there seemed to be almost like a, some sort of group mind think in a way where mm. people seem to forget temporarily that Matrix 2 and 3 were bobbins. <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember the, when Revolutions came out, the third one? Uh, the, it, yeah. They had that kind of gimmick where it came out at the same time all over the world. So in some countries, it came out at like four in the morning, 
and another one it came out at like seven in the morning and uh yeah i i remember that was one of the most disappointing i mean i was already braced for it because of reloaded but i remember mm. going to see it in what was then the trocadero um in Ooh. london love the trocadero really miss it oh man horrible <sighs> yeah, no, they were they were not good, but um, yeah, I I just remember going to see Revolutions and coming out just crushed by it. I, I have a lot. I have some time for Reloaded. I think the car chase is amazing, and I, every now and again, I just feel the the need to go online and and have a look at that on YouTube or pull the Blu-ray out. But yeah, they weren't good. But the first one was so good that you just hope that it's going to recapture that magic. Uh, it was so so freaking amazing the first one when it came out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And by the time you're listening to this, you'll have you'll have seen the trailer, so you'll know exactly what it, what it is, but uh, or or how it appears. But um, there there it's obviously we see a lot of Keanu in the trailer, and it seems to me that that seems like Neo has been plunged back into the Matrix and is unaware of his place or his previous history as as the one. Um, and there's a lot of prominence given to Yahya Abdul-Mateen II as well, and Jonathan Groff, who looks like he might be playing some sort of version of an agent, maybe. Mm. So his is the voice you hear on whatismatrix.com if you click on the blue pill, right? Mm. And then if you click on the red pill, you hear Yahya Abdul-Mateen II's voice. And it tells you that your clock is wrong. I had to check my I had to check my clock. I was like, "What?" Yeah, he was like, "You think it's eight thirty two? It's not." I was like, "All right, yeah, you're right. I'm a couple of minutes out." <laughs> it looks very cool. It looks interesting. It looks like they're doing a kind of Force Awakens style sequel stroke reboot at the same time. Yeah, I like that they're leaning into current day Keanu Reeves and aren't trying to sort of shove him back into a into his because he's he's a broader boy now. He's far broader. The hair's longer. It's shaggier. They've sort of lent into his sort of later action phase now I think and his kind of physicality it looks like from the five seconds I've seen so far but I I like that they seem to be leaning into that more than trying to sort of cram him back into where he was 20 years ago bearded Neo so he looks even more messianic that's the first time I've ever said that word ooh that (laughs) sounded great thank you I'm going to use it more often in casual conversation do you think he looks like John Wick do you think they should have tried to differentiate him a little bit more this is going to sound really mean but he sort of gives that same sort of performance anyway, I think. That same sort of cadence. That same Shots I mean- fired. <laughs> Shots fired. Bullet time. In bullet time. Dodging bullets. No, but I mean, I mean, in terms of, I feel so cruel because I love him so much, but his, his cadence, his tone of voice, it doesn't change too much regardless, I think. So I feel like... It wouldn't make much difference whether you try and differentiate him or not. You've still got Keanu Reeves in this film, just like you've got very much Keanu Reeves and John Wick. I think it's fine. As long as he says whoa at least once in this film. <laughs> if he doesn't, I riot. He's got to say whoa. Yeah, absolutely. So that is a trailer we haven't seen yet, but we will have. Uh, and who knows, uh, if we have the time, we may even do one of our patented podcast deep dives into the trailer depending on on how we're all fixed so maybe keep an eye on our twitter feeds for that for information on that but there are a couple of trailers that came out uh, over the last week or so that we have seen there's a very brief teaser for adam mckay's don't look up which just hit today and doesn't give a huge amount away apart from the thing we already knew which is it's a satire about a couple of people trying to warn uh, everybody of impending global disaster 
Is it true that pigs can't look up? I saw I saw a tweet earlier this week where people were arguing about whether a pig can look up or not. It's not really related to this trailer, but no, I was because I always think of the 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 line in um, Shaun of the Dead about dogs looking up. But never I say this. Can yeah, dogs can, but then apparently pigs can't. Interesting. I thought dogs couldn't look up. Uh, maybe it's the other way around. <laughs> we need to we need to do some experiments <laughs> after this. Up, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but yes. Well, we'll we'll get an answer for that. I'll get I'll get my people working on that. Uh, but what about the uh, what about Don't Look Up trailer? Well, it's Look- just gargantuan star power, isn't it? That's what he's yeah. able to summon every single time. But it's it's so funny because that's not even exclusive to Adam McKay anymore. If you think about what Netflix is putting out over the next few years, if you look at Knives Out two, for example, these massive starry casts that they're assembling for these films. Mm. Um, so I think it's just going to be yeah, gargantuan star power. Mm-hmm. And lots of slightly off kilter haircuts and wigs, which uh, has already <laughs> fully come through. I don't know what they've done to Meryl Streep. They've tried to kind of channel Laura Dern in Marriage Story, I think, onto Meryl mm-hmm. Streep, which I'm very here for. Mm-hmm. It was just a bit of a shock to the system to mm-hmm. to see. I'm very on board for this. It's very topical, you know, having the the these two characters who are trying to warn people of an impending crisis and no one's interested, no one believes them. And, it, you know, it's very much ties in with what's going on all over the world at the moment with a different Why, crisis. Well, because it's kind of a, like all these anti-science, anti-science people. Have I missed something? Is there, is there a big global disaster happening right now? If I I'll, fill it? You, I'll fill you on and off, okay, Chris. Good, um, good. Yeah, you, you've been a bit busy recently, haven't you? So you may not, I don't may not have noticed. <laughs> You've been recording too many podcasts, but uh, I mean, yeah, in Adam, in Adam McKay, we trust, and it's it looks like mm. everyone is kind of in the spirit of it. it looks like Leonardo DiCaprio is, um, you know, he's, uh, you know, he's had a he's had a makeover to look uh, extremely schlubby sweaty. and look like a character from the IT crowd. Yeah, he has a sweaty uh, patina about him. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, it feels like Jennifer Lawrence has been away for ages, and so it's it's exciting to see her back. Um, and then the cast, as Beth said, is just. Ridiculous. I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, this this Netflix one I'm I'm most excited about. Very excited about this uh, this one indeed. It's going to be out in December in cinemas and Netflix as well. Uh, and speaking of global disasters, Roland Emmerich's Moonfall has divided the Empire office. I think I can reveal that in that there are people who think it's a bobber, and then there are people who think it's a plopper. And <laughs> I am absolutely in the bobber camp. I think this looks like uh, Emmerich back on form. And, you know, it's the moon for some reason deciding to fall to Earth and cause chaos. And um, it looks utterly demented. And I am hugely excited. It sounds like a joke from The Simpsons, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> like the moon has decided to attack Earth. I mean, literally the tagline of this film is this year the moon comes to us. <laughs> And the press release says the moon is not what it appears to be. It's something I mean, I cannot just bring it on. Like whatever the moon reveals itself to secretly be, I am on board. I mean, it's so, so like amazing. Uh, the world needs this now more than ever. Um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this film could save the world. Yeah, yeah, it could. Do. It's it what could we do. need. Roland, as is in our time of need, has made a film about the moon attacking Earth, and I'm Finally. so on board. Honestly, a movie that finally calls the moon on its bullshit has been long overdue. <laughs> I look up at the sky every day and I, I shake my fist at that twinkly bastard and I think, well, you're not going to get away with this for too much longer, all right? Because Roland Emmerich's got your number, pal. Roland Emmerich has got your number. Uh, controlling our tides and our mood swings and all that. You <laughs> fucking, oh, moon. I want this to be the cheesiest film ever made. I want the climax of this film to be Buzz Aldrin having to like <laughs> blow up the moon. I just want I want this to just be absolutely berserk and cheesy and yes. and I have a feeling it's going to deliver. I hope so. I hope so. Uh Halle Berry, John Bradley, 
Patrick Wilson, uh, Michael Pena. This is the cast that you get when you want to spend all your money on the effects, and but they're still very, very good. And I'm what? But but at the same appalling. time, you want what you you declared Warren Keanu Reeves a second ago. So hang on a second. Um, <laughs> I did no such. But thing. they are they are most excellent uh, uh, cadre of actors. So I am very much looking forward to being pulverized by the moon and then pulverizing the moon back. Fuck you, moon. Take that uh, moon. Yeah, suck it, moon. And last week we were talking about. Top Gun Maverick moving back and how that might have an impact on the release schedule for the rest of the year. And then Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings came out in the middle of a pandemic uh, and did incredibly well. It, it broke uh, the pandemic record. It broke, I believe, also a Labor Day record as well. Um, just a general Labor Day record. It made 74 Five million over three days and about 90 million over four days and in the wake of that Venom Let There Be Carnage which had moved back a month then moved back up two weeks and suddenly that oh actually there's life in the box office yet so uh, I was very very happy to see that because quite frankly I would quite like cinemas to keep going <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be quite nice, be nice, be quite nice to have cinemas <laughs> it's a very Venom move isn't it to move for everyone else is moving back nervously and Venom just charges forward and it's like oh, ah, Eddie, I'm gonna- October 1st is available Eddie let's take it <laughs> yeah yeah bring on the carnage yeah, bring on the carnage yeah and uh, I also loved Simu Liu and his reaction to that you know because you know that story about how he was a stock model and stock photographs he did a single yeah. day's modeling for stock photographs and it'll haunt him for the rest of his career but he's leaned into it and there was a shot of him and some other people pointing at a monitor and laughing and he tweeted it simply saying me laughing at all the people who said we'd flop so, ah. uh, <laughs> so fair play to you mate fair play to you well they said because it was sort of treated as an experiment wasn't it that was that was sort of what they were trying to put out with the release this time and i think he bristled a little bit at that terminology so i think it's yeah yeah mm-hmm. i'm pleased yeah. i'm really pleased for it i mean i think the film's great i think it's uh it's really really good fun so it's tons of fun and we are going to be doing a spoiler special on that it'll be out next friday uh by the way that one our shang chi spoiler special and our Candyman spoiler special is going to be out well actually by the time you're listening to this so there you go every week there'll be at least one spoiler special folks we do sadly have to talk about we we lost some incredible people this week in the film industry some incredible incredible people uh we lost joan washington who was a dialect coach extraordinaire um People like Jessica Chastain and Guillermo del Toro paid tribute to her whenever she passed away earlier in the week. Uh, she was the wife of Richard E. Grant as well. If you, uh, they were married for I think thirty-five years, yeah. and how they met was a was a fascinating love story. So there is a, an an interview with them both that they conducted years ago. Well, I think they've been married just for ten years. That the Guardian did. It was going around this week, and it was just a really beautiful thing. And Richard E. Grant's tweet paying tribute to his wife was. Heartrending, uh, absolutely heartrending. So, uh, our condolences to him and his family. We lost Sarah Harding as well. Sarah Harding of Girls Aloud, who was in a couple of movies over the last few years. She was in Centrinians and Centrinians too. She passed her really young, thirty nine, just thirty nine. And quite frankly, uh, you know, I'm sure so many people listening to this have, have known people who have had cancer and died of cancer and or have had cancer themselves and quite frankly i think i speak for us all when i say fuck cancer i actually i saw fritten's gold so many times because i was working at cinema when it was playing and i used to go in and do the screen checks 
And she was such good fun in that ensemble cast. She really got to stand out and be a little bit punkish and and forthright and outspoken. And and those are really fun films anyway. Um, but she especially, she felt like a real standout for me. I was really pleased I got to see so much of her. And then, of course, we uh, we also lost the incredible French actor Jean-Paul Belmondo, who was not just an amazing actor in, you know, he was in Breathless, for the love of God, but he was a force of nature himself. He was, you know, as a, as a stuntman and as an actor who could do his own stunts. Um, and I had an incredible, you know, it, very, very sad. Obviously, he passed away this week at the age of 88, but I had a, a really fun and interesting hour spent on YouTube after the news broke, just watching some of these incredible stunts where he's literally, you know, he's on a, he's on a truck. He's on a truck that is parked on a massive slope. And then the truck raises and he's, all these rocks are on the back of it. And the truck tilts up and the bed of the truck suddenly gives way. And he, in one shot, falls out the back of the yeah. truck and rolls down the hill, like bouncing down the hill with <sighs> stones going past, a mass of stones that could have taken his brains out at any second. It is or like they, something out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. It's absolutely <laughs> oh, it's astonishing incredible. to watch. It's amazing. But he was somehow like, yeah, a stunt stunt guy extraordinaire, but also just ridiculously cool. Like cooler yeah. than everyone I know put together. I mean, just like ridiculously cool. He looked like Walter Matthau's French cousin. <laughs> he, had this, he had this nose that was just, uh, that, you know, I don't know what shape it was initially in his life, but at some point, you know, perhaps a bouncing rock or something just went splat into his face and his nose just re- rearranged itself. Yeah. And it's this beautiful thing. He had this kind of hang, hang dog, kind of laconic vibe to him. But yeah, yeah I mean, he, he kind of, when you think of the French New Wave, he's kind of, you know, maybe the first person you think of. He, he worked mm. with Goddard and De Sica and Melville, all of those guys, and was just in all these iconic movies, Pierrot Le Fou, as well as Breathless, and, mm-hmm. and just a very, very cool cat. And I believe Empire Magazine voted him one of the 100 sexiest movie stars of all time. He walked, he walked so Oscar Isaac could run. That's what I will say. <laughs> Indeed. I like to see Oscar Isaac do his own stunts to, to, that, to that extent, <laughs> leaping over rooftops and, and nearly dying and climbing up things and throwing himself off stuff. It was, uh, yeah, it was absolutely amazing. There was a, there's a film I've never seen of it. It's called Borsellino, which he, he stars alongside Alain Delon, uh, which is available on, on iTunes. So I'm going to try and watch it this weekend, which apparently is just like the two kings of French cool coming together and... He was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Jean-Paul Belmondo, who passed away this week at the age of 88. And I, I don't think I've seen anything for a long time like the outpouring of love and grief that greeted the, the news that Michael K. Williams, a.k.a. Omar from The Wire, had died this week at the age of just 54. Yeah, this, I mean, I can only touch on this. I'll, I'll obviously leave this to, to the both of you to kind of because I've, I've not seen The Wire, which I'm sure is enough to get me oh, instantly Beth, fired Beth, from pilot no, no, TV. No, I mean, no, who, who cares about that, honestly? <laughs> but no, honestly, this is, the, you, you know, you could take your first steps into a larger world, just like Luke Skywalker. And you could, honestly, The, the Wire is incredible. Incredible. 
I'm sure you've heard that before. <laughs> I've, I've, it's, it's sort of been murmured in in my yeah. previous company, but so I can't speak too much of the impact that he's had on me in terms of the things I've watched. I have seen when they see us. I've seen Borwick Empire. I've of course seen him in The Sopranos. But what has really affected me this week is just seeing or reading people documenting his actions as a person, I think yeah. is what's really touched me above all else. That's not to say he's nothing but an incredible performer. I've been watching videos of him dancing. I didn't realize he had this stellar early career as a dancer for people like Madonna, which is which is wonderful. That just makes me love him even more. But it's it's reading, you know, Ava DuVernay talking about how he would come onto the set when he wasn't even due on that day to kind of come in and check in and and tell people they were doing a good job. Riz Ahmed, he bought him this beautiful coat, just this yeah. really exquisite coat for him and just hung out in his trailer when when he wasn't being filmed to check he was okay during the night of and, and also gave him this most wonderful advice. It was something like, don't believe it, dream it, which I think from anybody else would sound ludicrous, but from him, it sounded like the kind of thing that you take very, very seriously and you carry on through your career. So yeah, as I say, I'm, I'm, I wish I was more schooled in, in, I, I haven't seen his definitive performance, but I mm. think we've lost someone, someone incredibly compassionate and empathetic who was very generous alongside his craft. And, and it's, it's an enormous loss. Yeah, it, felt, it really felt like he could do anything. He could do toughness, he could do vulnerability, he could play every shade. There is the human experience and some, sometimes do it within the same character. I mean, Omar is, is you know, that that is a show that is stacked with incredible actors and incredible characters, but he stood out really, like even among all of them. Such a, such a kind of fascinating, complex character. He's this stick-up guy with a shotgun under his duster, but at the same time, he's, you know, he's this gay guy who is like, helps, takes his grandma to church. I mean, there are so many different shades of it, and just the way that he explored that character and brought him to life. I mean, it's. I saw somebody saying it's one of the top five TV characters of all time, and that's probably true. It's mm. he's that iconic and that just mesmerizing. Mm. It's it's wild, isn't it, to be to be in with a shout of being considered, and I think probably rightly the most memorable character and the greatest character from one of the greatest TV shows of all time is is. Given the the incredible breadth of talent on display in the wire, it, it says it all about his character and the impact of his character. I mean, I was aware of Omar before I even saw the wire. I was very very late to the wire, not as late as Beth, but it's okay. <laughs> you know. But I, I I came to the wire after it had finished its run, and uh, I was aware of Omar. I was aware of Stringer Bell. I was aware of these iconic characters that kind of transcended the show, and Omar certainly did. And I think there's 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 something here about how Hollywood, I think, is certainly in terms of film, the film side of Hollywood, perhaps let him down, perhaps failed him a little bit, perhaps didn't quite raise themselves to meet his talent. Um, you, you look at his film film credits and they're not, there's nothing that stands out like an Omar. There's nothing that stands out like a Chalky White from Boardwalk Empire. And I think that's very, very sad. He ended up, you know, doing an awful lot of supporting roles and, you know, and fairly thankless supporting roles at that and it was on the tv it was on tv it was on the small screen where he was really allowed to you know show us what he was capable of but he also seemed like such a, a gentle wise soul and it's really really sad and he was tremendous yeah 
And just a born actor. I, yeah. I was lucky enough to meet him once briefly on on the set of the Robocop remake, which oh, I think a man. lot of I think a lot of filmmakers put him in things because of the why. You know, weirdly, yeah. he, he's in the Incredible Hulk for like two shots, I think, um, in the middle yeah. of an action scene because Edward Norton was such a fan of, of what he did in the Wire, and uh, Jose Padilla, who did Robocop, you know, they just everyone wanted to put him in things, uh, yeah. even if sadly his roles were often not you know, particularly substantial enough for his talent, but he was great. It was such a pleasure to talk to him for like 20 minutes and him talk about, you know, all the different challenges he wanted to take on. He loved, he was clearly like a born actor and he, he talked about, about, um, you know, he'd love to have played the black, black Panther, for instance, he brought up as a character he'd love to have played and he wanted to, you know, be the lead in a superhero film. And it's just really sad to think what could have been. It's way too young. Yeah, way too young, way too young indeed. Uh, so Michael K. Williams, the K, of course, stood for Kenneth and Rufus Jones, occasionally of this parish, uh, and of course an amazing actor and amazing writer, uh, said this week that he actually got in touch with uh, Michael K. Williams in the early days when he was just when he had just joined Twitter and told him that there was another Kenneth Williams, and then showed him footage of Kenneth Williams in a Carry On movie, and they and they had a they bonded briefly over that. <laughs> Um, so yes, the, the amazing Michael K. Williams who passed away this week. Time now for this week's first guest. Uh, I said in last week's show we were trying to get Gerard Butler, but we couldn't quite get it over the line. Jerry, if you're listening to this, and I know you are, come on the podcast anytime, anytime at all. You know you always have a giggle. This is it. This is how you do it, right? <laughs> You ask people directly on the podcast to come on the podcast anyway. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, Jared Butler's new film, Cop Shop, in just two seconds. But our first guests this week are from the fantastic film herself. So Phyllida Lloyd is the director of Mamma Mia, <laughs> very topical uh, at the moment for obvious reasons, and The Iron Lady. And then when The Iron Lady came out, she went back to the theatre and she hasn't made a film since The Iron Lady until herself, which tells the tale of an Irish woman played by Claire Dunn, who also wrote the movie, who finally escapes the shadow of her husband's physical and emotional abuse, takes her children with her, and then throws herself and her local community into building a house in a friend's backyard. It is a wonderful film, incredibly insightful and funny and moving and important and profound, all the good stuff. Uh, and so I was, I jumped at the chance to have both Claire Dunn and Phyllis Deloitte on the podcast. As luck would have it, whenever I spoke to them last week, uh, Claire Dunn was actually staying in Phyllis Deloitte's house. Uh, so they were sitting next to each other. So that made things rather easy indeed. So I had an absolute blast with this one. I will say that we do get into some fairly dark territory, some fairly emotional territory as well. So trigger warning, if you are triggered at all by spousal abuse and domestic violence. But that said, it is a cracking interview. Here you go, Claire Dunn and Phila Deloitte. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by the director and the star and co-writer of herself, Phila Deloitte and Claire Dunn, who are together Sitting together, this is this is blowing my mind. What's happening? <laughs> well, it's a reunion for us, isn't it? We yes. felt, we felt it was a bit like a date. We haven't seen each other for so long. It's been amazing. It's been eighteen months since we've laid eyes on each other. So I took my first flight yesterday from London, from Dublin to London, and um, so it's kind of like a mini little press tour slash reunion fest for me for the next three days. <laughs> so Claire, are you staying with Philida? Is that is that what's happening? Yes, you see, I have a long history of being a nomadic sofa surfer. <laughs> I basically ended up 
living between Dublin and Ireland for so long and coming back over to work with Philadelphia and Harry Walter doing the trilogy of Donmar plays that we did together yeah. that I then ended up just staying in the houses all the time and becoming an in-house uh, yeah just like a bit of a lodger <laughs> so we're just picking up where we left off aren't we yeah. <laughs> does money change hands or is this just very much an informal arrangement no dinners are had <laughs> rounds of drinks are bought <laughs> And Phil, this isn't something that you know, people can't go on Airbnb and just <laughs> just arrange to stay at yours, right? Stay with the director of Mamma Mia. <laughs> that, that honestly, that, you know, you, you may poo-poo it, but, but uh, if you're willing to do a business venture with me, I'm willing to, I'm willing to, honestly, I'm willing to come in 50-50. Uh, <laughs> this is a great idea. Um, but obviously the two of you, you've worked together, you are very, very close. Uh, is that where herself came from? How did it originate for you? Well, at first I was just kind of starting it off on my own, to be honest. And I I, I had an idea once my friend called me and was in a situation very similar to Sandra's. Well, not the domestic violence bit, but just having to look for a house in Dublin with her couple of kids um, and there being nowhere to move to. So I was sitting in New York um, after only having worked with Philadelphia for a couple of years at that point. And I basically was fantasizing about her being able to build a house for herself, Googling self-build cheap Ireland and words like that. And then came across a guy that had actually done that for himself for 25,000 euro. And therefore, like an idea sparked in my mind. And I started, I suppose, quite naively, but just started to learn how to screenwrite and started to write. That was back in 2014. And by 2016, I had a bit of support from the Irish Film Board, as it was called back then, Screen Ireland. And then me and Philida were still working every year in theatre. So Philida kind of knew through the grapevine that I was writing. Then I was like, oh, would you have a look and give me some advice? So you were kind of there as a mentor, weren't you? And a friend. And um, yeah, I'll hand it over to Philida then. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was sort of thinking, oh, I mean, I was completely sort of blown away by what Claire did, even in the first draft she showed me, which probably wasn't her first draft. but, But I was thinking... Oh, this is a very, it's a very Dublin story, a very Irish story. You know, I, I want to be part of the sort of support team, but I, I didn't really feel I was entitled to put myself forward to be the director. But then gradually, as I got more and more sort of passionate about what Claire was trying to do and realised that she wasn't thinking about playing, necessarily playing Sandra in the film. She was thinking to get the film made. And it was so obviously not a vanity project. She just felt like the story had to be told and maybe she would play a smaller role in it. And she was showing it to actresses. And I just began to think, hang on, you know, this is insane. I knew how, what a kind of mesmeric talent she was. And she wasn't getting, I didn't think her just desserts on screen at all um, in terms of um, screen roles. And so that's where I was like, no, actually get over yourself. Um, <laughs> really put yourself forward for this. And so that's how it happened. And, and Claire and Harriet and I were all working in, um, we were doing these productions set in women's prisons mm-hmm. and working in prison and meeting a lot of women who had a background in domestic abuse in childhood. And so it was very much this is what we were talking about. These were the voices we wanted heard. And on sort of crazy levels, it felt like just the three of us wasn't as simple as this, but we were able to kind of continue our social mission over into 
into film, which is I've been trying to get my work to cohere in that way for a long time. Because obviously it had been a a while since you were since you directed the film, so so in a way this almost not that you fell into this in a way, but were you actively looking to get back behind the camera again, or or were you had you decided to focus on, on theatre? No, I was actively trying to, and I was trying to to find a low budget um, film to do, and I felt instinctively I'd be more at ease in that world because it somehow felt more like the work we were doing mm-hmm. on stage. And, and it seems, it sounds crazy, but it was really hard to get people to hear me. I, they just sort of, I don't think they took it seriously and kept, you know, in a way offering me the films I'd already done again, mm-hmm. more biopics, more musicals. And yeah, so I, it was, it, it felt, it was a really lovely place to finally get down to earth in that way, literally. In our case. Yeah. <laughs> Rain and earth. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's what I love about your filmography. I mean, you have that obviously Kubrickian gap now between the Iron Lady and herself, but you can't pin you down as a director. As, as, you, as you say, I mean, musical, biog- biopic, and now herself, which is completely different from anything that's come before. It's all one thing to me. It's all one, you know, it's obviously very much a feminist, female driven mm-hmm. mission. And yeah, it, 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 it's, it all, it all comes from the same place on some level. And uh, Claire, can you tell me, tell me about the um, experience of, of writing it and the, the research into domestic abuse and how it affects women uh, in in Ireland and and everywhere in fact you know it 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 feels that this is a movie that is trying to give a voice to the voiceless and when you're sitting down to write that and you've done all your research and you've spoken to everybody how difficult was it to put all those voices to one side and let it and and almost let them breathe through the material that's what i learned really was that these women are living on a war front they're soldiers they have PTSD after this experience for years. It's the same process. I read whole books about it, that they compare Holocaust victims, Vietnam soldiers and domestic uh, abuse sufferers all in the same vein. They go through exactly the same thing in their body, their mind, their soul, their emotional structure, and they have to rebuild their neural pathways. They have to learn how to live for themselves and decide for themselves what they want and how to trust and build relationships and also come back into their body because their body has been through so much trauma. And what I learned was like, I was meeting people that have been through this and they're on the other side of it. And I met people that were not just strong, but like living their life to the fullest now after all of this. And not only that, but giving back and almost like helping other people that are going through it. And they were just, they were funny and charming and able to tell their story from a healthy point of view, they were like literally like soldiers back from a war that have already been through it and processed it and got to the other side. And I remember the first ever encounter I had with a woman that was that had obviously been a, a survivor of domestic abuse. I met her in a women's aid charity shop and she grabbed me by the arms when I told her what I was thinking of doing. I said, look, I'm just this fledgling writer, like I'm going to try and write this film about a woman getting out of this situation and she builds a house herself. She grabbed me by the arm and said, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Would you please just not show us as victims? Just please don't. Mm. That was the first thing that was ever said to me. It was the first thing that was ever said to me and it was from somebody who's been through it. And that was literally 
all I hung on to mainly. It was like after that, it was kind of like it was all the detailed research, you know, like about child with child psychologists and family lawyers and then women's aid workers and key workers and people who had set up refuge refuge places in small country towns in Ireland where it's much harder to to leave a person because everybody knows each other so intimately. And so it was it was actually weirdly about sitting down and almost I actually transcribed a lot of the 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 research interviews and if there was even a phrase that they said that I went that could be inside of a sentence or a line I would ring them and ask them can I use this as part of a sentence like like for instance the the line in the courtroom was from Sinead and Women's Aid where she said and why like Sinead was actually having a rant to me and she was just going like I just don't know why they keep asking the question why did you leave him like they never ask why didn't he stop and when she said that, I it was like a lesson. You know, I was learning from the woman that's been bringing these women into courts for 20 years. And I was like, that is that is the most amazing way of putting that. Mm. So I rang her and I said, can I use that as a line? Because I've never heard anyone express it quite simply like that. And it says everything you need to say in one line. So really, I was like, when I sat down to write, I was trying to contain myself and try and like put in what really mattered and then and then make it a dramatic scene you know uh, so it was tough but at the same time it was kind of about uh actually giving voice to those voices in a very real way and, and ringing them and saying can I use this can I use this detail or I was really inspired by that can I can I use that so yeah it was kind of an amalgamation of 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 you know, the dramatic screenwriting thing, but with actually almost like directly pulling from these interviews transcribed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a a tremendous scene. I mean, literally every review I've read of herself singles out Ask Better Questions and singles out the monologue in the courtroom. And I know that as a director, writer, actor team, that you have to treat all scenes equally. But at the same time, were you aware that that scene would have an impact going into it you know, on the day, filming it? Philida, can you talk, talk about you know, staging it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a very, we, we both put ourselves under a lot of pressure over it. Um, Claire did a lot of refining of the text. Um, and I think we both felt after it that we'd let each other down in some way. I mean, mm. I felt I hadn't done my best and Claire wasn't sure what you know what what was left (laughs) she was so exhausted by that day that we were doing it that I almost couldn't remember doing it and it was like a level of like yeah you we both felt like we were on the edge of a cliff like I don't I think it's because the courtrooms are such they're yeah they're heavy for the women that go through it it's like because they have to go back and meet the person that did all this to them and somehow speak up for themselves but we both felt pressure didn't we yeah and and you know we may I may not have left enough time to shoot it and you know it was the end of a week it was one of those real you know I I felt slightly irresponsible in a way that I'd perhaps I'd left us not enough time and um but all of the actors you know which was a sort of hallmark of we tried to sort of find the the greatest 
Irish actors that there were in all the tiny roles, people stepped forward and said, I'll do that. Mm. You know, Jane Brennan, who played the judge, mm. it was sort of like people wanted to be part of this because of what it stood for. And so I was very lucky with Ian as well, who was able to, you know, step into that role of Gary and with such incredible selflessness. And mm. he did a lot of research himself on the kind of narcissism and, you know, the potential background of, of the, the abusive mm. partner. So, yeah, the actors really just delivered on, on the day. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm proud of what, um, what Claire did and, and the others. And Tom Comerford, who shot it, mm. helped me a lot in, in the, the kind of the mood of it. it. It just felt. It was a huge amount of like everybody felt the weight of this court scene on the days because mm. I remember Ian literally wouldn't and couldn't make eye contact with me off screen even. He literally, he walked by me in a hall at one point. He went, sorry, Claire, I can't be, I won't be able to look you in the eye today. Because it was so like painful. The thing that these people were going through and what he was doing to her, that he really had to separate himself from everybody. Like he really, because he is so not Gary, you know, mm. But he, he wanted to be able to deliver this and give it the feeling that it needed and be, the, the, you know, what, what needed to be worked off for me. And Kathy was incredible. And Sarah, who played the lawyer that just goes at me and at me. Like it was it was everybody could feel the tension. And we were in the actual family course. So you could feel from the buildings. It was like it held the tension of what these people go through. It was so, so weird. It was so weird. And I, I think one of the things we were struggling with was the banality of the actual courtroom space, procedure yeah. and the space. It, you know, it's not grand. It's you not know? sort of Kelly McGillis <laughs> is it, yeah. in the accused. And I kept thinking, you know, where are we between, you know, flat earth and the banality of the real thing? Mm-hmm. And actually this sort of cliffhanger moment for, for Sandra. And uh, how to balance the the, the kind of um, the sort of flatness of it with what the necessary you know this was that kind of that moment in the film where everything was going to be lost it, it mm. was it was challenging. Mm-hmm. It, it's fascinating to me uh, fascinating to me that you you say that you you felt that in in some way you had not tackled the scene correctly. Um, um, when you got into the editing suite, were you swiftly disabused of that notion? When you began to watch it being put together, did you realize, oh, we, we nailed it. We got something powerful here. Yes. And and I think I got a, a message from Rebecca Lloyd, our editor, a couple of days later saying, I'm sitting here, I've, I'm weeping watching the courtroom scene. You know, you've both nailed it. And, and just sort of almost crying myself with relief, thinking I didn't want to have let Claire down. It was, yeah, it was really... <laughs> A bit over the top, but but it was a great it was a great relief. Yeah, the thing it's just the highs and lows of independent filmmaking, isn't it? And also when you really care about a story, it's like every day you're taking that. You know what I mean? It's like once you've done a scene, it's done. <laughs> and you're moving on. <laughs> so, Unlike the theatre, where yeah. we're used to having these kind of really dull days where we're kind of going down cul-de-sacs and thinking, oh my God, we've got to reverse back down <laughs> yeah. that one and try something else. And you can have these dull days that seem to go on and on and on. But, you know, when you're making a film, it's got to be mm. Olympic gold every day because there is no, 
you know, at mm. this budget level, there's no going back. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I'd love to talk to you more about your relationship as as your director and writer now, but also director and actor and how this changed over the years. But sadly, I've got to let you both go. But uh, uh, by way of a complete tonal shift, uh, I've got to ask Philida in particular about the ABBA reunion. Um, you know, I'm what's... <laughs> I mean, that's just wild, isn't it? I was worried that I was waking Claire up at one o'clock this morning, kind of going over the songs and looking at them in their kind of crazy computer-generated suits and looking at what, I mean, (laughs) what those guys, they they are incredible. They're just never going to give up, you know, making stuff. They've never stopped. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm touched that they actually, you know, the two songs that they put out, Everyone's received them with such kind of, um, yeah, warmth. It's nice. And so when you, when you heard the news, do you think, here we go again? Is that what you thought? <laughs> Actually, I thought they are incorrigible. You know, they are amazing. You know, we're still waiting for the third in the Mamma Mia trilogy. And I'm just saying, I'm, I, you know, I could be looking at the director and the star right here. <laughs> just saying. Just putting it out there. That's for our karaoke nights. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. All right. I was going to say, because you guys could go off and make the film and then, you know, I could run the Airbnb with, uh, <laughs> with Phil at his house. It's a perfect business. It's a great business opportunity. You guys go away and have a think about it and then get back to me and we'll make sure, it work. Sure. We'll make it work. My people will talk to your people. <laughs> Absolutely. I need to get some people first in order to talk to your people, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Uh, Phil and Claire, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much indeed for your time. Uh, thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having Thanks us. Thanks a lot. Thank you. So that was Clara Dunn and Phila Deloitte. And now let's talk about herself because it is time to delve deep into the films that are out this week in the multiplex and the sofaplex as well. And herself, it's one of these films that I'd heard about for a long time because it was, I think it was scheduled to come out. Pretty sure it was at the Dublin Film Festival when we were there last year. Or was it last year? Christ, whenever it was, doing our live show. And so it's been knocking around for a long, long time. But I only recently saw it. I was blown away. Beth, were you similarly blown away? I really, really was. I mean, a film like this, you can't make based on a feeling about this subject or an interpretation of the subject. And as you will have heard in this interview, this is such a labor of love and care taken to depict domestic violence in a way incredibly empathetically and carefully. And I think... It really does come across, not only in the writing, because obviously Claire Dunn, she co-wrote this, but in her central mm-hmm. performance as well. I think it's it's probably one of my my favourite performances of the year, just off the back of, of the sheer dedication that she brings to this. And then it's a beautiful looking film as well. I think Phila Deloitte has taken such care to make sure that this isn't a kitchen sink drama least of all because they don't have a kitchen sink yet. It is about building a house from scratch. (laughs) Uh, But she takes such care to make sure that this doesn't look like a Ken Loach film. This doesn't look like realism necessarily, but without drawing it away too much from the subject matter. So it's bright and it's crisp. And there are these lovely, big, sweeping external shots of you know building this house together it's got an extraordinary sense of community at its heart as well which the timing of this film's release is slightly off so I watched it for the first time last year when I was uh, in lockdown and the sense of community that they capture 
again, through the writing, but also a really, really wonderful ensemble cast as well. It really touched me at a time when we couldn't really reach out and be with our communities. Uh, and that was incredibly rewarding to watch as well. Mm. So yeah, beautifully cinematic, which I wasn't expecting at all. And then, yeah, just tethered to this absolutely dynamite performance from Claire Dern, which has come from a lengthy time with this project. I think she's been working on it for about 10 years odd. And the the proof really speaks for itself in in how naturally she's able to embody the voices of so many women without making them seem like victims either. I think that is really, really important about this film, that this is not a film that shows a woman who is a victim of domestic violence. She is, mm-hmm. it's it's quite easy to say she's a survivor and, you know, she goes under this, but it's it's really mm. about the complexities of, of being a woman in this situation. Um, and I like the way that they handle it. I like that there's only really one case of assault that you see on screen at the beginning that's dealt with very early on. It's, it's, it's certainly still very painful to watch, mm-hmm. but they choose to show the repercussions of violence to see the lasting impact of violence that this man has had on, on Claire's character and, and on her two daughters as well. And, and yeah, I, I've, I think this film has been long overdue to be honest in terms of how it shows domestic violence. And, and yes, I'm, I'm very pleased that it's come out into the world and it's been done in exactly the way that it's been done. Yeah. Interestingly, we, we gave it three stars, which is of course a recommendation as we always say in the podcast. Um, I would definitely be, very comfortably in the higher camp. I, I I thought this was absolutely terrific, and you sound like you are as well, Beth. But yeah, it's it's a really, really great film. Brilliant acting, and Claire Dunn, who has you know she's a theatre actress. You know she's you know been in lots of amazing productions over the years. I think you probably seen her. The film most people have seen her in would have been Spider Man: Far From Home, where she's one of Mysterio's crew. And she's also, I believe, briefly in Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. But, you know, this might be the movie that also wakes directors up to her as well. Use Claire Dunn, people. Use Claire Dunn. Three stars then for herself. Next up, we have Gerard Butler, Frank Grillo, Joe Carnahan, and Utter Fucking Mayhem in Cop Shop, which is like Assault on Precy 13 for people who thought that Assault and PC-13 had some boring bits. So basically, <laughs> and then just cut those boring bits out and then uh, Jerry Butler and Frank Grillo being dickheads. Um, and that is Cop Shop, basically. So that's my review of it. Beth, what did you, what did you, what did you make of Cop Shop? Okay. Uh, you're, you're right in the it's carnage. It's just... It's Joe just... carnage more like. Oh, no. Let uh, it be Carnahan. No. <laughs> I didn't mind this film... It was, I feel like it's arrived maybe two or three years too late. I think it's arrived in the wake of films like Bad Times at uh, the El Royale Hotel Artemis, where there is this reimagined underworld that these characters operate in. Everyone's double-crossing someone. Everyone's got a tick or a kook or a a little something about them. Um, And it doesn't mean it's it's not entertaining to watch. I do really enjoy it. There's a great breakout. I think she's a breakout um, actress in Mm -hmm. this. Alexis Lauder, who is a cop in this. She's sort of seen as the the straight arrow amongst all these uh, motley crew of bent cops and hit yes. men and and whatnot and she's sort of this very savvy very smart mouthed enjoyably kind of 
Yeah, she's she's an incredibly resourceful character. It's it's kind of thrilling to see her navigate through this essentially this like motley crew of of maniacs. They're all slightly uh, bombastic and uh, evil to an extent. So this is fairly simple. So it is Assault in Precinct 13, and it's a thriller that takes place in a police station. But uh, the last time Joe Carnahan and Frank Grillo teamed up, they've made a, a couple of movies together, The Grey being another one, of course. Uh, we had Frank Grillo in full buff action mode, and that was in Boss Level, which came out in this country just a few weeks ago. Uh, this is not Frank Grillo in that mode. This is an attempt to give, you know, to to show more strings to Frank Grillo's bow. So he is a slimy scumbag called Teddy Moretto, who is wanted dead by the mob, and so. He basically seeks a sanctuary in the safest place he can think of, which is a police station. And Alexis Louder is the the young uh, police sergeant who is a little bit more on the money and a little bit more on the ball than the rest of her colleagues, some of whom may even not entirely be on the up and up. So he goes into the holding cell. Teddy goes into the holding cell, thinks he's safe. Uh, then they bring in a drunk uh, into the cell opposite him, and lo and behold, just in case you thought this film wasn't already dripping with enough testosterone, it is Jerry Butler as Bob Fiddick, who is yes. a hitman extraordinaire who has infagled his way into the police station with one job and one job only, and that is to kill Teddy. So Teddy's in one cell, Bob is in another cell. You have this police uh, policewoman, Valerie, who is beginning to cotton on to the situation. She's not sure who she should trust. The Both of them are a lot of fun to hang with. Um, you know, does Teddy have a heart? Will Bob have a heart? What's going on? And then a wild card shows up in the uh, in the form of Toby Huss as uh, Anthony Lamb, who is a deranged maniac. And uh, then it turns into basically a, a, a four-way battle. Uh and I tell you what, folks, I mean, the trailer makes this thing look utterly demented and a little <laughs> bit like the sequel to Smoke and Aces in terms of its tone. The film itself, I thought, was a little bit more serious, a little bit more contemplative than that. There's still some incredible action sequences in this, but it is. It's about battles for people's souls, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to say, I really liked it. <laughs> is, is, uh, is Bob a Bobba? <laughs> Bob, Bob is the question on my mind. Bob is a dangler. Bob is (laughs) he's a plopper. He's a plop. He's a bobber. He's a plopper. He's a dangler. He's a he's a he's a lover. He's a fighter. He's you know he's he's everything. He is everything. And uh, you know it's it's Jerry Butler being smushed against Frank Grillo, but Alexis Louder is not in a not in a sex way. Um, You have to pay extra for that. And then you have Alexis Louder. Sorry, Alexis Louder, uh, who is amazing and a real find uh, and Toby Huss is all kinds of hilarious as Anthony Lamb who's the kind of psychopath who's aware he's a psychopath and basically provides a running commentary on his own actions as he's blowing people away so it sounds quite good I mean you guys have sold this to me I, I now want to see it I uh, you know it's it sounds like Assault on Precinct 13 turned up to 11 <laughs> Assault, it's Assault and Precinct 11 that's what, that's what it is all the way up to 11 yeah I yeah Beth, did you equally have a blast with this? I mostly did. Do you know what? I wanted more carnage. I really wanted... Um... Woody Harrelson with a wig on. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted. No, I, I did. I just, it lulled for me ever so slightly in the moments where it did take itself slightly more seriously. Um, mm. It's when it really does lean into its final act, which is this big 
violent showdown with plenty of double crossing, plenty of twists and turns, and a pretty detailed uh, breakdown of how to make a really nice vegan chicken wrap that kind of cements <laughs> the whole set piece in a way that is very um, endearing. And again, a yeah. testament to this newcomer, uh, Alexa. Alexa's louder. So, um, Alexa's louder. <laughs> oh, I bet she loves that. Yeah, she's never heard that before. <laughs> so yeah, I, I loved it at its most chaotic. It lost me ever so slightly when it was taking itself a little bit more seriously. That's fair, but what, what I'll say very, very quickly is that it engineered more tension than I thought there was going to be. I thought it was just going to be a blast, like a like a smoke and ices, in, like an inverse smoke and ices. Um, but it, it wasn't that at all. And I actually was on tenterhooks to see who would live and who would die and in what way would they live and in what way would they die. So, uh, yeah, it had, it, it had me at hello. I'm, I'm. <laughs> Teddy Moretto. Uh, Frank Grillo, yes, yes, please. Sherry Butler, yes, please. Alexis Louder, yes, please. Joe Carnahan, yes, please. Three stars is what we gave Cop Shop, but really we gave it 727 stars. 727 stars for Cop Shop. Yes, yes, yes. Film of the year. Are we sure about this? No. Do, do we? Do, no. Okay. No. Just <laughs> I've lost Just myself. a quick fact check there. Nick, help me. Help me, Nick. I've lost it. The, the new issue is just stars for Cop Shop. Yeah, but there's nothing else. We couldn't fit anything else in. The new issue is there's something on the cover. I'm, can we, no, we probably can't say what it is, but there is something on the cover of Nick's first issue. But whenever the issue hits the stands, I'm going to go around the country just replacing it with pictures of Cop Shop. So it's a Cop Shop special. That's pictures what the new of, issue is going to be. Pictures of Bob Fiddick. Bob, Bob Fiddick. Fiddick and Teddy Moretto. That's, that's what it is. Anyway, three stars then for Cop Shop. Anyway, remember earlier on when I said that we wouldn't have Helen or James on this podcast in order to keep them fresh for Saturday night? Well, I lied. I lied. Surprise, suckers. <laughs> it's James. Hey, James. How's it going? Finally let your hair grow out, I see. Well, you know, it's time. It's been shaved for so long. So It's yeah. Helen. It's <laughs> Helen. <laughs> Helen's like pistachio of disguise. the master of disguise. You appeared there as a total bell end. So I just Whoa. assumed you were James. Wow. What? what? Come on, it's Daddy. What? Oh, Beth, who <laughs> literally has tried to tear Keanu Reeves' career Will down here. Like, no, I aren't. No, no. Please, please listen back. I knew I'd, I shouldn't have started on this journey. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, well, it's too late. You did not show Keanu Reeves the proper R E S P E C T. <laughs> and by way of an amazing segue, that is exactly what <laughs> Helen is here for because none of us have seen Respect, the Aretha Franklin <laughs> biopic starring the wonderful. Jennifer Hudson and Helen has. We will have seen it in time for this week's live show. But Helen. Hello. Um, Aretha Franklin is one of the greatest musicians ever to cross the face of the earth. And this biopic does not entirely do her justice. However, it is anchored by a very good Jennifer Hudson performance, uh, which is why, spoiler, I give it three stars. But this is... Um, this is basically, uh, it takes you all through Aretha's life. It looks at the recording of some of her most important tunes and, and, and I think tries to make the case for her as a musician. I think people have a tendency to dismiss her as a singer and that's not what she was. She was a writer and a composer and a, and a ranger of songs as well. She was incredibly important as a musician. And I think this film does make that case. But because it basically trips through her entire life and tries to build in the story of, you know, her her early pregnancies, her uh, failing for first and indeed second marriages, her, uh, you know, relationship with her family, there's an enormous amount there. I mean, the sort of six-hour genius TV show, which starred Cynthia Revo in the same role a couple of months back, 
struggled to fit it all in. Surprise, surprise, it doesn't all fit into this two-hour film either. Um, and you lose some of that interior sense of her as a person. It doesn't hugely get under her skin, although it does, to its credit, deal with her struggles with, you know, alcoholism and, and depression uh, and not just, you know, how to write incredible songs like Respect. Which she didn't write, right? She she gave it the R-E-S-P-E-C-T bit, which kind okay. of made it. So that, that's what I mean. That's not one of her songs that she wrote, but okay. it is one yeah. of the songs that she broke for anyone else to follow. No one else okay. can sing that and not get a, <laughs> eh, Aretha did it better, you know? Um, um, I think... I think that's a that's a challenge. Challenge accepted, Helen. Yeah, seriously, bring it. Let's go to Lucky Voice. All right, Let's do it. How, how much of this film is dedicated to the shooting of that scene in the Blues Brothers where she sings that while John Belushi <laughs> eats four fried chickens? Actually, she sings "Think" in the first Blues Brothers. She sings "Respect" oh, in the yeah, second. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Aww. either way, it doesn't go quite that far. It only goes up to the recording of "Amazing Grace," which, by the way, if you haven't seen that Aretha Franklin documentary, yes. that should be your priority. I cannot stress this enough. That is absolutely incredible. Um, this is. A, a totally fine biopic with a good cast. You know, Forrest Whitaker's in there as well. Audra McDonald, like really, really great people. Just, yeah. they can't, they don't have time. They don't have the direction. They certainly don't have the script to really get below the surface and really get with what made her tick and what made her one of the greatest people of all time. So they're trying to, it sounds like they're trying to cram too much into to, to one movie. Maybe a TV, it could have been a TV series instead. Well, that's what I'm saying. The TV series didn't actually yeah. manage it. You know, right, um, right. I think Cynthia Revo, I think is, I actually think is a better singer than Jennifer Hudson. Come at me. Uh, that's right. I said Holy it. Holy shit. Um, but I, even she, I don't, like neither of them can do Aretha. Aretha's just, and, yeah. and the problem is with this, like not to get into spoilers, but over the end credits, they play that tr clip of her singing You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman to Carole King, who wrote it at that um, mm. presidential uh, event yes. with with Obama, just losing his mind at her. Yeah. And you see how much better she is than everyone who's played her on screen. Yeah. Like, it's <laughs> not even funny. So yeah, Aretha all the way. 10 million stars for Aretha, even more than Cop Shop. Um. <laughs> no, I'm saying for Aretha, right. the person, three generous stars for respect. All right, ten. So okay, we have to sue together, divide them by two, three stars then for respect. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so thank you Helen thank you for doing that and try not to just repeat that when we're on stage on Saturday night <laughs> and we're golden we're okay. golden okay what could go wrong yeah what could go wrong what could go wrong indeed well listen let's hope we don't find out on Saturday night anyway earlier in the show I mentioned that there is going to be a Candyman spoiler special that's going to be going up on the spoiler special subscription feed for spoiler special subscribers, uh, maybe around the time you listen to this, or maybe a little bit later, but it will be up today, Friday, the 10th of September. And in case you haven't subscribed yet to the spoiler specials, and you're not quite sure what you're in for, here's something that might wet your whistle and might entice you. Who knows? It's an excerpt from our spoilerific interview with the Candyman director, Nia DaCosta. Mike Munzer, who is also the host of the excellent podcast, The Evolution of Horror. Mike Munzer, who is also the host of the excellent podcast, Evolution of Horror. Spoke to her a couple of weeks ago, and you can hear the interview in full on the spoiler special, along with an hour or so of us giggling idiots delving deep into Candyman. But here is an excerpt of Nia DaCosta, and yes, in case you weren't aware, and yes, in case you weren't aware already, spoilers 
right from the off. So if you haven't seen Candyman, stop listening. If you have seen Candyman, carry on for the next eight minutes or so. Enjoy. Okay, welcome to the Empire Podcast. Nia DaCosta. Hello, Nia. Hi, how are you? Really good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. A little sick. So I'm sorry I to sound hear that. A bit raspy, but I'm I'm here for you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I would love to jump in with some spoilery sort of plot specific questions, if that's all right. Um, and I guess Please. I just want to start off by asking you a bit about, I suppose, the reveal in this movie that we've not just got the one Candyman, right? It's not just Tony Todd. Mm. It's multiple Candymen from sort of different mm. generations, which I thought was mm. such a fascinating twist on the story. Just tell me a little bit about the decisions, I suppose, when coming up with this story and kind of what kind of mm. spurred you to want to make that decision? It was, oh man, I think if I'm remembering correctly, the original script, I don't think had that kernel of an idea in it, but what it did have was the idea that Anthony himself will, would become Candyman in the end of the film. And that really, that really spoke to me because I was like, oh, that's so great because I really want to humanize <laughs> um, or not necessarily humanize, but like talk about the fact that these people that we create into that we make into martyrs or, or monsters are, are humans, first of all. Um, and then as we were like developing and, uh, you know, I was in Chicago and we we're just like trying to figure out um, how to expand on the original story. It came about. I'm not I can't remember exactly how, but it was. Um, I think, I, man, I don't know. It's just what happens when you have a great brain trust, you know, <laughs> we get to work with great people. But I think it really just came from, at least for me, it was about making sure we talked about the fact that this was um, cyclical and the history repeats itself. And this isn't just an incident that happened to one guy named Anna Robotai, but it's actually an environment in which we live that, that, allows for these things to happen over and over again it feels like it really speaks to the themes of the movie i wonder if you could just tell me a little bit about those themes and what you were um what you were saying with this story in terms of the idea of black legacy but also black monsters in the horror genre i suppose oh sure yeah um well, i mean i guess for me it was really about that legend building you know storytelling and how through throughout history we, we create stories in order to to soothe our collective trauma. It's how we kind of collectively decide what we should be afraid of, um, what we should warn our children about. It's how we protect ourselves from others by maybe scaring them away from our community to protect our community. Jordan always says, you know, the, um, the, the, the monster of the film is actually storytelling, it's stories. Mm. Um, and so, and that always struck me. Then I also just wanted to, I don't know, bring, other stories of trauma and and horrible sort of happenings to the fore because so much of the movie is about black pain, white violence, racial violence, and um, and how we kind of move forward through it in order to try to live our lives. I always felt like the the character of the original Candyman, Tony Todd's Candyman, he was mm. sort of equal parts sort of terrifying, but also quite majestic, right? There was some mm. something something very sort of attractive about him at the same time. Tell me a little yeah. bit about designing um, the other Candymen in this movie. I mean, particularly the one that we see in quite a lot throughout quite a lot of the film is the one that's kind of set up in the opening scene, right? This Sherman character mm-hmm. from the 1970s, yeah. who terrifying in this movie uh, when he sort of pops oh, up good. at various moments, but Tell me about decisions in kind of designing that particular Candyman. It was really fun because um, something Jordan and I talked a lot about, we're like, okay, so what are the iconic sort of pieces you need to keep from a visual point of view? And then I was kind of digging into like, okay, what sort of horrible happenings um, can we uh, lend uh, from the real world to a couple of these other Candyman? Um, Sherman's 
completely invented. He's the one I think more closely tied to the original Candyman legend. You know, he worked in a candy factory. He had a prosthetic hand, which was, which wasn't shaped like a hook, but was really because you could, you know, pick things up in an easier way. Um, and so we kind of were like, okay, so Sherman had the hook. He worked at the candy factory and then the, an, a candy man before that um, he had, he had the jacket and then a candy man before that he had, you know, this or that, or, you know, it wasn't bees necessarily, but it was, you know, this guy wore a black and black and yellow, like sweat sweater, you know, just like, how can we take all these people that we introduced in, in the movie who eventually become candy man and what parts of their story are we saying created this sort of legend that belongs to, to all of them, but also none of them at the same time. There were some incredibly creepy moments that really got under my skin when we will see glimpses of him in reflections mm. or in the background. Tell me a little bit about how you uh, directed uh, sort of creating scares, I suppose, in this movie, because it mm. seemed to me that it didn't have lots of the sort of traditional jump scares. You went for slightly other tactics in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I really wanted it to be eerie and psychological, not necessarily sort of a jump scare movie. I think we have a couple of jump scares, but really I wanted it to be the horror to build sort of slowly um, and and to sort of mirror the, the real life horrors with the um, sort of concocted ghost, demon, um, whatever you want to call it, Candyman, uh, sort of slasher horror. So yeah, so it was a lot about mirrors, a lot about like seeing things and not seeing things or something hiding in plain sight, which we tried to do with Sherman and, and the reflections a lot. Um, and then also just in how we depicted the violence, it was it was less about like, oh, okay, this person's dead now or this person's getting carotid um, or carotid. <laughs> Yeah, garotted. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> garotted, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's like we know what's gonna happen. Like from the time they say the fifth Candyman, we're just like waiting, and so that anticip- anticipation for me is much scarier than you know seeing someone get disemboweled. How come Candyman? Like with some characters, he, he, he they say the name five times and he appears instantly, right? And they're dead. Other mm-hmm. times, it's something else, something more insidious, something more gradual. You know, did you kind of, yeah. did you or you and Jordan or whatever come up with kind of rules for this particular Candyman? So the biggest rule shift I would say from the first film is basically that we're saying like, the reason why Sherman's only inside the mirror initially is because, you know, he's, uh, you know, the original, the OG Candyman, Danny Robitaille, he's been like sort of vanquished by Helen. Um, and it's not until he's like reborn inside Anthony's body that he can now be flesh and blood and then just become Danny Robitaille again, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, but really, I mean, good luck trying to come up with a solid, like consistent <laughs> uh, rules for Candyman. Because <laughs> we were looking at the first film and I remember we were like, wait, so Bernadette said it here, but she doesn't die until all the way over here. And then this guy... He said it, he didn't say it all at once. He wasn't looking in the mirror, but he, you know, like it was, and so we kind of were just like, okay, that gives us license to sort of use this um, in a way that's useful for us, but also isn't like too crazy. So, you know, the things that matter, you say it five times, that's the key. I know, right? I've always like, oh, so if somebody stood next to them, are they going to get killed too? Or if you mm-hmm, say mm-hmm. it three times, but then like a week later, say it another two, is it going to happen yeah, yeah, then? Yeah. You know, it's all those things you yeah. kind of can't help but think about. Does it have to be the same mirror? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, what is a mirror? What is a reflection? You know, yeah. <gasps> oh my God. And speaking of, you know, there were reflections and mirrors in what felt like almost every shot in this movie, which I loved as well, mm-hmm. because I was constantly kind of glancing around at what was going on in the frame any given moment. Mm-hmm. Just as a director, though, that must have been a bit of a logistical nightmare right working with so many mirrors and reflections just everywhere on every oh, set oh yeah it was <laughs> terrible um i mean it was awesome but it was also like so hard yeah and then you know we did previs a lot we did a lot of previs so that we could try to make sure we knew 
um, like what the reflection would actually be, especially for Sherman, since he like lives inside the mirror. Mm. We're like, okay, is he a reflection or is he in the mirror like the right way around? Like it was so much, <laughs> so much like trying to figure that out. So it was, it was really hard. Okay, so that was Nia DaCosta, or a taster, just a little excerpt of the Nia DaCosta spoiler special. The whole thing is awaiting spoiler special subscribers over at our spoiler special channel. If you don't already subscribe, go to empireonline.com forward slash spoiler specials for more information, or simply go to my pinned tweet on Twitter, I'm at Chris Hewitt, for details of how to sign up. This week, as well as Candyman, you also got to mark the film's debut on Home Entertainment, a spiral from the Book of Saw spoiler special featuring the film's director, Darren Lynn Bowsman. Next week, you're going to get Nobody. Yes, that's right. Nobody. One of my favorite films of the year, the fantastic Bob Odenkirk action comedy. It is out finally on Home Entertainment. And to mark the occasion, we're going to bring you an epic spoiler special featuring the film's director, Elia Neismuller, and the film's writer, Derek Kolstad. Two epic interviews there. I'm using the word epic a little bit much, but I'm going to use it again because next Friday sees our Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings spoiler special. Epic, epic, epic. It's going to be huge. It's going to be very, very long. We have two incredible in-depth interviews on that with the film's director, Destin Daniel Cretton and the film's co-writer Dave Callahan. Well worth it. Well worth it, folks. Well worth it. Anyway, listen, I said there's enough shilling. <laughs> that is enough shilling because on that bombshell, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us on Saturday for live film-related fun. Remember, that won't be available on this here feed as a podcast. It is a bespoke, one-off creation, and it will be demented. So go to kingsplace.co.uk for tickets and or your streaming pass. Don't buy a streaming pass and then go to buy a ticket as well, because that would be weird. Then watch it in the auditorium. Strange. Anyway, and join us next week for more virtual film-related fun. Oh, actually, no. We should be back in the studio next week, right? For the first time since March 2020. Ooh. That's going to be exciting. That's going to be exciting for everybody, <laughs> especially Helen, who has to make a two-hour trip. Uh, and we'll be joined <laughs> by uh, Karen Gillen, star of Gunpowder Milkshake, and Mark Cousins, director of The Story mm. of Looking, and one of my favourite people to impersonate. And no, I won't be doing that to his face. So until then... Until that auspicious occasion, until we meet again, it is goodbye for my three, haha, yes, three colleagues of such lethal cunning. Quick three facts, Roger, anybody? No. No, okay. absolutely not. <laughs> Squadcast names. There is no web. It is pond-dwelling scum, <laughs> Beth Webb. Thank you. Go back to my, go back to my swamp now. <laughs> Bob back to my swamp. Plot back to my swamp. <laughs> it is goodbye from Dr. Feelgood, Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. That's an Aretha Franklin song, by the way, if you haven't heard it. <laughs> <laughs> it is goodbye from Nick Reloaded, Nick Dissemblian. Goodbye. I'm off to find the nearest pond and plop or bob, delete as applicable. <laughs> <laughs> I might do a bit of both. And it's goodbye from me as well, Omar Cumming. I'm off to write a new action flick for Frank Grillo and Jerry Butler. It is called Bobber and Plopper <laughs> Pond Cops. <laughs> Frank Bobber and Rick Plopper are cops <laughs> on the edge, okay? The edge of the Charlton Lido. And when one of those funny swimming aids, you know, the ones in the shape of a duck, goes missing, then Bobber and Plopper swing into action. So I've got the first 30 pages in my head. All I need now is the other 
12 pages and I am absolutely on top of this thing. In cinemas next year, four stars is Empire Magazine. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week. Bye. Bye.